0: Today is the celebration of the transfiguration of Jesus. It's an event which tends to be underappreciated in the Western church, though for various reasons it's of enormous significance in the East. And I hope this morning that Westerners, though we be, we might grasp the richness and the encouragement and the hope that is ours in this strange And bewildering event. Now, here at Westminster, we're in the middle of a series on God, a series on the being and attributes of God. And we are continuing that series here. This is not an interruption. For the Feast of the Transfiguration allows us the opportunity to preach on the glory of God. So, this title could be The Glory of God. These texts, which were read this morning, right, the Gospel account of the Transfiguration in Matthew, and the text from Second Peter, which is really Peter's interpretation of that event, his inspired apostolic commentary. These texts, they allow us to expound the glory of God. The glory of God, not merely as it belongs to God and His divinity and His divine nature, but as that glory is seen in Jesus Christ. So we'll make four points. They're there on your outline in the bulletin. The glory of God, glory incarnate, glory unveiled, and the hope of glory. So, first, the glory of God. It's a thing we talk about a lot. One of the benefits of this series on God, right, is to stop and think about the things we think and talk about a lot. So, The glory of God is the thing that Moses thirsted for in Exodus 33. Moses, think of this. Moses, who had seen the miracles in Egypt, astonishing miracles. He had seen the plagues. He had seen the deliverance at the Red Sea. He had eaten the manna that fell from heaven in the wilderness. He saw the fire and the thunder and the darkness on the top of Sinai where God himself came down and gave the law. That was not enough for Moses. That Moses cries out, please show me your glory. Most of us would be like, well, that's plenty of glory for me. That's plenty of glory for a lot of lifetimes. But but you see what Moses wants to do. This is a move we don't often make. He wants to move from God's works to God himself. Right? Mighty, many wondrous works had been done, but Moses wants to see God in his essence, in his divine nature and being. He knows that these are glorious works because he is glorious. So he wants to get to the fount of the glory. And thus his yearning is, show me your glory. Yeah, I get victory over Egypt and deliverance at the Red Sea and provision in the wilderness and the giving of the law. Spectacular. Now, I want to see your glory. And when we speak of God's glory, we are not really singling out one thing. Right? We spoke of this when we spoke of divine simplicity or God's unity. God's glory is something like the sum of all his attributes. It's tied to God's singular uniqueness. And thus God himself is said to be jealous for his own glory. That's a rare thing where God says he's jealous about something. But he is jealous for his own glory. He will not, he says in Isaiah, I will not give my glory to another. So what is it? Well, Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said God's glory is the sparkling of the deity. It's the sparkle. This brings us a lot closer, I think, to what we think of when we speak of the glory of God. It's a kind of sparkling. So we are talking here then about the grandeur, the sublimity of God. The glory is virtually synonymous with majesty. God is even called in the Peter text that we read, he is called the majestic glory. Psalm 76 says, glorious are you more majestic than the mountains full of prey. So you have this coupling of glory with majesty. More well known is Psalm 145, on the glorious splendor of your majesty we will meditate. So glorious and majestic is our God. And this glory is associated, and again, we are grasping here, right? We are using human words. This glory is associated with light or with radiance or with shining, right? With what what Watson called the sparkling of the deity. But Moses found out, right, that this glory is such a brightness, that you cannot see it and live. You cannot see this glory and live. God, who is light, dwells, as we've previously seen, in unapproachable light. You know, this, some of this comes together in Psalm 104 very nicely, which Psalm 104 says this, You are clothed with splendor and majesty. You cover yourself with light as with a garment. So we have to sort of pile up these words, these metaphors, splendor, light, radiance, majesty. So we could sum up the glory of God like this. It's a kind of luminosity, a fire, an impenetrable, dangerous radiance, right? It's the intrinsic, essential excellence the incandescence of God himself. That's the glory of God. So now let's look secondly at what happens when Jesus becomes man. The glory of God incarnate. This God takes up human nature in Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John says. And you know what John says after that? and we beheld his glory. So, it's very important right here to remember who Jesus is. If you've been around here for any length of time, you know, I think the church is pretty good on what Jesus did. It's less clear about who Jesus is. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity, the son, the eternal son and word of God. And thus Jesus possesses the fullness of the divine nature with the father and the spirit from all eternity. So as the book of Hebrews puts it, he is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his nature. It's that one who assumes or takes up into his divine person a fully human nature. So Jesus is, in his divine nature, the burning radiance, the glory that we described, the splendor that Moses could not look upon without dying. Jesus is the essential glory of God now in human form. And this is an astonishing reality, and it's at the mystery at the center of the Christian faith. And it means many things, but I want to point point out two things this means here. First, it means that in him, God draws near to you and shows you his glory in a form that you can, in fact, gaze upon and live. And that's an astonishing gift, right? In Jesus Christ... The impenetrable radiance of God becomes flesh. You can look on him. John says we beheld his glory. This is the apostolic testimony. We handled him. We saw him. We touched him. We beheld the glory. Right? Throughout his incarnate life, his life embodied in our flesh, Jesus shows this glory, right? John's gospel says he showed his glory first at the wedding of Cana with his first miracle, when he turned water into wine. Nobody died there. He repeatedly says, I glorify my Father. And he shows this glory even paradoxically in the passion, in the suffering and death of the cross. And of course, we see something even more of his splendor in the resurrection. But this has to be said, beloved. Through his life, for the most part, the immediate glory of the divine essence is not directly seen. Yes, we see God's glory in Jesus Christ, but the full radiance of his divinity is obscured. It's veiled in the form of his flesh. It's veiled in the form of his human lowliness. It's wrapped in suffering and humility and agony. We see the glory of God, but we see it indirectly, in lowly human form. Except at the transfiguration. Except at the transfiguration. There, the consuming fire that is God shines through for just a brief moment. And that brings us to the third point, glory unveiled. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. We see the glory, but it's veiled. Here, I want to look at the transfiguration event itself. The context in the gospel is that Jesus is beginning to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things. He must be killed and on the third day raised. But if you just back up in Matthew's gospel from chapter 17 where our reading was, and just back up a couple paragraphs, you'll read all this. Peter responds with this famous protest, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. He gets rebuked by Jesus, get behind me, Satan. And then Jesus turns to the disciples. He says that we have to deny ourselves to follow him, take up our crosses. And then just before this event of the transfiguration, just prior to our text, he says this. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Remember that because we'll return to it. And about a week later, we're told, the event takes place. Jesus takes Peter and James and John, he leads them up this high mountain by themselves. And you get these references to a mountain and a bright cloud and a voice, right? And and an alert reader recognizes this is evoking the atmosphere, the ambiance of Mount Sinai. When the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain. All of which led to Moses' face being irradiated, being transfigured by the light of God. There's a mini transfiguration event in Exodus when Moses comes down from that mountain. And on this high mountain, Matthew 17 verse 2 says, Jesus was transfigured before them. The word used here is our word for metamorphosis. So what is happening here? What has happened is that all earthly dullness, all the lowliness in which his glory was wrapped has been stripped away. And the disciples are giving a full glimpse of the glory of Christ. It even affects his clothing. The text text says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Unlike Moses' glory, which was fading, this is a glory which is intrinsic to Christ. It is unfading, though to this point it has been veiled. So again, it's really crucial to see what is going on. This is not just a nifty miracle to teach us Jesus is really great. What is happening here is the divine nature of Christ His intrinsic burning radiance, right? his fiery splendor, his unapproachable light is now irradiating and lighting up his human nature, including his physical bodily existence. That's what's going on at the Transfiguration. In one sense, it's the only place in the Gospels we see Jesus for who he really is fully, unveiled. And the voice comes and identifies him as the son to whom we must listen. It is this glory. The divine glory. Again, it's not like God just poured some kind of radiance onto Jesus. What is being unveiled here is Jesus' intrinsic radiance. It's the glory that John was given to see in our second reading this morning when he looks at the, the risen and exalted Christ in Revelation chapter 1. Right, That Christ has eyes that are flames of fire, and his face is full, shining like the sun in its strength. And before this transfigured humanity, what does John do, the apostle? He falls down. I mean, think about this. John saw the transfiguration twice. He's on the mountain with Peter. He's terrified there. And then he gets the vision in Revelation, and he falls down dead there. In both cases, the vision in Revelation and the Mount of Transfiguration, dread and terror and the threat of death follow from seeing the glory unveiled in the embodied Son of God. This is something you don't see in Jesus on earth. And we see something very beautiful in both of these texts at this point. You know, Jesus, as dreadful as his glory is, right? In him, God speaks to you tenderly. And even in a human voice, in Revelation, he lays his right hand on John and tells him, fear not. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. Same thing in the Gospels. Jesus comes up, touches disciples, says to get up and do not be afraid. It's this mark this magnificent paradox of it is only the dread terror of God that can make you unafraid. Part of the reason we're so afraid is we have no sense of the terror of God who you fall down dead before and then who lifts you up and says, okay, now, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. They see only Jesus when they get up normalcy of some kinds restored, the visitors are gone, and the Lord probably appears the way he did before the transfiguration. Just a second, right, on the mountain, or a few minutes. Even the followers of Jesus are not yet fit to live in the light of this glory perpetually. Our bodies are not ready to see this body. And that brings me to the final point here. The hope of glory. And here I want to focus on Peter's Peter's account of this in 2 Peter 1. Peter's an eyewitness, right? He tells you what the event means. He's referring to the transfiguration. And he says that we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he says we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Please do not miss this. Peter speaks of this event as Christ's power and coming. And the word for coming is the ordinary word used in the New Testament for the second coming. Second coming of the Lord, parousia. The NIV translates this phrase this way. It is about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. Jesus had said some of those listening to him would see his power and coming. And Peter clearly associates this event of the transfiguration with a foretaste of the coming of Christ Jesus at the end of the age, a preview of the second advent. So in the transfiguration, you don't only have the intrinsic glory of God shining forth, you have the intrinsic glory of God shining forth as it will be seen when Jesus comes in power and glory. The transfiguration is the seeing of the risen and coming Jesus in the glory of his kingdom. Again, it's not just pyrotechnics. We were eyewitnesses of this majesty, Peter says. His eyes had seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. So we have in the transfiguration a glimpse of just a glimpse, a glimpse mediated by the human nature of Christ, of the glory and the majesty of the God who was and who is and who is to come. The glory of the triune God. It is this glory that Paul has in mind when he says Christ in you is the hope of glory. God calls us, the New Testament repeatedly speaks like this. It'll say something like, God calls you to his own glory. Or God calls you to his eternal glory in Christ. This is what it's talking about. This is what Jesus is praying for in his high priestly prayer. When he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am, and they may see my glory. Glory. So here is where this, I think, is going to touch down closer to you. This burning, irradiated body of light possessed by the sun is your calling. It is your calling. It is your vocation. It is your destiny. It is your hope. It is an icon of your future body. When you read this transfiguration story, you should think that is an icon of my future body. No gym membership required that's what my body is going to look like. So we have not only a vision of that glory, we have the surest confirmation that we too are destined for that same fiery, translucent, embodied majesty at the coming, at the parousia of the Lord. This is the Christian hope. This is why the Feast of the Transfiguration is a big deal in the whole Eastern Church. Because they've pulled these threads together. We can see this beautifully come together in Philippians 3, where Paul says this. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, what will he do when he comes? Well, Paul says he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. At that point, you will be the subject of the transfiguration. He will do that by the power that he has to subject everything to himself. So at the coming of the Lord Jesus, witnessed in advance already on the mount, witnessed in advance already, you get a body like his glorious, divinely luminous body. A body fit for the city. Fit for the city which is itself illumined by the glory of God. What other kind of body could you have? So the transfiguration means we yearn for the glorious advent, the parousia of the Lord. For then, as we saw in the call to worship, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. Notice that. I mean, in the call to worship, there's this remarkable mystery. What we will be has not yet been revealed. (laughs) Because what we will be, Is transfigured bodies of burning light. Now, in the church year, wisely I think the Transfiguration comes right before Lent. Next Sunday is the first Sunday in Lent. This Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. Why does the church put the Transfiguration right before Lent? Well, for a couple reasons. One, right Jesus does it with his disciples right before he's going to the cross, going into Jerusalem to the cross. It's in the middle of a dialogue on taking up your cross and dying and suffering with me. You know what? Because the transfiguration is Easter in advance. It's Easter in the sense of it's a guarantee of your resurrection glory when he who is raised comes in power at the end of the age. And the disciples needed to see this before they saw Jesus suffer. And, And as such, these texts on the transfiguration, they have a very clear very simple, very direct, very singular, practical purpose. They are intended to encourage you in the way of the cross. You think, well, this seems like an ethereal, abstract text. There's a shining body, and someday I'm going to have a shining body. The whole point of the text is to encourage us in the way of the cross, to give us a glimpse of the glory in advance, lest we lose heart. We lose heart because we get our eyes off the glory. This is an event you must remember in the midst of life's travails because it's the pledge that you will surely be transfigured with him. It's practically important to us to remember where we are going in the midst of the crosses and the bitter disappointments and the perplexities and the brokenness of life. We need to taste and see the future or we will faint on the way. In that sense, the transfiguration is a lot like the sacraments, right? It's a taste to encourage and nourish and nurture you on the way. That's why it's right before Lent. That's why Jesus gave it to his disciples right before he was about to enter into his passion. And I want to conclude by looking at a practical application that Peter draws. He says in his text there that we read that the transfiguration confirms the prophetic word of Scripture, and that we would do well then to pay attention to that word. Interesting, right? Peter says the transfiguration means you should attend diligently to the Scriptures. I suggest this is not an implication we would naturally draw. In other words, Peter's saying this. He's saying, look, you are not going to get your own private transfiguration-like experience. That would be a terrible thing to go out of here and seek. The event happened. Peter describes it, and now he says, pay attention to the text. Right? The point of the transfiguration is not to create in us a hankering for visions or apparitions. It's to point us to the text and to a yearning for the Christ-centered glory promised in the text. The text, Peter says, is a lamp shining until the full day, the day of the Lord's coming, the day of his transfigured glory being on full, global, universal display. Peter says scripture is like a lamp in a dark place. You walk by the lamp. It won't be necessary. You won't need the lamp in glory. There are no scriptures in heaven that need to be read because the light radiates forth in fullness there. Scripture is for pilgrims. It is, Augustine says, I hope some of you remember this, Augustine's saying now, it's one of my favorite things on Scripture. Augustine calls Scripture the face of God for now. It's the face of God for now. But it's not the face of God for later. It's the face of God for now. So, it turns out the glory of God, then, is not just an attribute of God. This glory floods the humanity of Christ. This glory is what the glorification of the saints entails. And this glory has already begun now in you, in your inner man, when you gaze upon Christ's glory with unveiled faces in word and sacrament. Glory has begun in us. It is perfected in him. Glory has begun in you. It is perfected in Christ's humanity. And it will, this visible, palpable, burning splendor, it will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. At the coming, the parousia of the transfigured Lord of glory. Amen.